Let me pray. Father, that song is, is exactly right. Exactly right. Oh, how we need you every hour. We need you. And yet, how often for us, uh, for we human beings, we fallen beings, how often is it that we need a war or a threat like we have now to remind us of that? We haven't needed you any more today than we needed you two weeks ago. We needed you two years ago, five years ago, just as much as we need you today. And yet, sometimes it takes war to remind us of that. So I pray by your Spirit, would you please come and move? Will you commission your Spirit to work amongst us today? And will you be our gentle teacher? We need to be taught. Will you teach us deeply in our souls? But will you be gentle with us? Will you be gentle? We are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to wander from you whom I love. But, but you are a gentle shepherd. So will you shepherd our souls today? Start with me. Teach me, even as I preach, teach my soul and lead us, I pray. Amen. So, um, we pray, we worship, because what we need most in this world is to endure in faith. To endure in faith. And prayer, prayer is the most fundamental form of faith. Prayer is the most fundamental expression of faith, prayer. We must endure, as we will see today, as we've already heard read before us, in prayer. But there are two enemies that fight this constantly. One is disappointment. Disappointment and discouragement. That's one enemy of faith and of faith-filled prayer. The other enemy is presumption and pride. We'll, we'll look at that next week. But today we see... Jesus teaches us gently how we battle against that first enemy of disappointment and discouragement, which can so often lead us to become lethargic in faith and then to finally just go silent on God. So, Jesus commands us at the beginning of this passage, always, he says, always pray. And by always, as we look at this passage, we'll see that always does not mean every single moment of every single day. But it does mean persistently. Persistently and boldly, and as we will see, widely. Persistently, boldly, and widely. We are to pray against our enemies. Christians have enemies. There are enemies of our souls. They exist. They are there. And somehow, somehow, sometime in the past, we Christians concluded that if we are nice... And that, and that if we just turn Christianity into being nice, then our enemies in return will look at our niceness and decide, oh, well, okay, well, since you're so nice, then we'll stop threatening you. But that world doesn't exist. That, that timeline is nowhere. Um, that's fairy tale land. Christians do have enemies. And when we said, let's play nice, our enemies smiled back at us and said, oh, sure, dear. And they've been slicing us and bleeding us dry ever since. So, let's look at Jesus' parable, because the main character, the widow, she's wiser than we are. She's got eyes in her head. She knows she's got enemies. 
Let's see what she does with them. But first, verse 2, there was a judge in a certain city. And this judge, it says, neither feared God nor respected man. Verse 2. He was strictly for himself, whatever benefited him. This judge, he, he is the perfect picture of an atheist with power. <laughs> his own existence is his only God. Does that remind you of anyone? If there is anything that explains both Ukraine and the years of COVID, it is this, envy. A lust for self that is filled with malice for others. And this envy comes from making our own existence our God. You, rem you remember, maybe you learned this in school, Descartes' old phrase, I think, therefore I am. The Enlightenment was not all good. Because somebody else said that once a long time ago, different words, a dragon in a garden. Did God really say, we, our existence is not our, our God? Well, but, but that's, that's where envy comes from. That's where this lust for self comes from, by making our own existence our own God. And thus it is no coincidence that true justice in our culture has disappeared right along with the, the rejection of God. Because the two go together. When man makes his own existence his God, he lives in lust for himself and becomes a rule unto himself. And when we become a rule unto ourselves, there is no rule. The only true law then is what benefits the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. And in saying this, I, I don't judge the world because the world is already judged. It's just showing the evidence for this judgment right now. So, but I am saying, shame on us Christians for thinking that we could squeeze blood from turnips, for thinking that, that there is any neutral middle where we might expect true justice from God-rejectors. What? It doesn't work that way. And yet a God-rejector is all this widow has for help from her threats here in verse 3. And the original language here implies that she has real enemies, Real enemies that threaten and harm her very existence. And that day, if you were a widow, you were already in a bad position. There's no social security. It was often a hand-to-mouth existence just to be a widow. But then to have enemies on top of that who are persistently threatening and harming you. That's, that's the sense here. Ongoingly, persistently threatening and harming you. Well, now you know what a Ukrainian feels like. <laughs> These enemies are persistent. They try one thing and then they try something else. To use the language from verse 1, they are persistent and thus she is always threatened. Always. Takes different forms, but she's always threatened. And so, verse 3, she's always coming to the judge over and over and over again, persistently, consistently. As persistently and consistently as she is threatened, she comes to the judge. And she asks the judge for justice, literally here, to be avenged of what her enemies do and what they threaten, literally for full justice. But again, why should this judge care? And he doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't. So he refuses to give her justice, verse 4, because how would that benefit him? But the enemies persist, and so does she. Verse 5, the, the widow keeps after him over and over again to the point that it says that he's beat down by her. She can't fight her enemy on her own enemy's terms. She's too weak for that, but she does fight. She does fight. She leaves the judge feeling literally pummeled. <laughs> 
In one other place in the Bible where Paul says that I discipline my own body, I pummel my own body, same word. (laughs) He's literally black and blue by her pleadings. (laughs) She is as prim and proper here as a soldier on the front lines because this is war. This is war. And she's fighting and she's not giving up. With every blow, she returns fire for fire by coming to the judge. And by her unrelenting pleadings, she makes the judge move because now his skin is literally in the game. (laughs) He's black and blue. And so, verse 5, he finally gives her justice. Okay, so that's the parable. That's the parable. And now Jesus gives us three principles that we must see, three principles that we we need to to understand and to absorb into ourselves if, if, if we are to be fed in our own souls that we might endure through difficulty in faith, in faith. These three principles are this. Who is God? Number one, who, does, who is God? And when does God answer prayer? When does God answer prayer? And who are we? Who is God? When does God answer prayer? And who are we? First, who is God? And ironically, just like last week, um, remember Lot's wife? Just like last week, Jesus uses the negative character of the parable to make his point. It's just really interesting. Um, Verse 6, hear what the judge says. He doesn't say, follow the example of the widow, which is really, that's what I would expect him to say. He says, hear the judge. (laughs) Hear the judge. Hear the judge say, I'm black and blue. Stop. Okay, you get justice. That's that's what he wants us to hear, which is really interesting. So why? Why? Because it tells us who God is, who God is this way, by this logic. In this world, even a self-centered atheist, if pressed enough, if the polling data falls far enough, might bend to give a needy person true justice. But you, my disciples, are you praying to a judge like that? Is that who you're coming to when you come to God? Well, Actually, it is if all you do is tweet and send memes about your cares and you never pray. Yeah, that's, that's who you're coming to. You're just venting to turnips hoping for blood. But if you pray, you're praying to God, verse 7. You're praying to God. So hear the judge and make the comparison. If this godless judge can give justice, how much more will this God give justice to his people? And then, and then Jesus essentially says in verse 7, don't, don't think about this superficially. Noodle on this. Is our God a human judge? When you come to him, will he say, I need to sleep on it. Give me a little bit. I need to see how things will benefit me. Let, let, let me wait for the next election and then I'll, I'll, I'll figure things out. Let, let, me, let me lick my finger and check the wind and then I'll get back to you. Is that, is that your God? Is what Jesus say, wants us to say. Is that, is, is that our God? No. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but what Jesus wants us to do, and amen, sister, what Jesus wants us to do is take that truth and turn it around and preach that to our hearts. We need to preach that to ourselves because so often you and I have this image of God in our minds that, that, that he's up there like a, like a kid with a magnifying glass over an anthill just saying, I'm going to burn some and just see what happens. And I don't care. I'm just in it for me. Or he's like a, you know, a, a sleepy a, a grandpa in the, in the back, you know, what, 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 what? Did, you, did you say something? You know, 
uh, let me nap. After the game, you know. We have all these pictures in our head of who God is, and so many of them for Christians are heretical. They're wrong. They're faulty. They're me included. So Jesus says, preach this to yourself. No, this is not your God. So flip verses 7 and 8 over from a rhetorical question to a statement. Here is your God, Christian. Your God avenges wrongs done to his people in perfect justice. And there's, there's just a period there. There's no, like, equivocating. There's no, um, you know, yeah, yeah, but uh, there's no qualifiers. That's your God. And he does this, verse 8, without delay. Speedily, it says. Speedily. So again, we will come to who we are in a moment. But before we start to think about, and we'll talk about how the timing of his answering of prayers in a second, but we're supposed to take Jesus at his word here. We're supposed to be confronted with this. Do I believe this or not? God hears his people's pleas for justice and he acts upon those pleas immediately and without delay. Which again, we're going to talk about timing in a second, but do not let these questions that we might have keep you from hearing the judge as Jesus commands you to do here. Your God is not some human judge. He is utterly faithful to bring justice. And utterly capable, he always responds immediately without delay. Which, so often, we do not see. Let's be honest, we do not see it. Thus, it requires faith. Faith. Faith is trusting in that which we cannot see. And this is different, this is different however, than not having any reason for our faith. As we will see, there, our faith is a very reasonable faith. There are solid reasons for our faith but our faith is in that which we cannot see. That's what faith is. So it takes faith. So the question here is about the faithfulness, is, is not about the faithfulness and responsiveness of God that is not in question one bit. The question is, verse 8, when the Son of Man returns, will he, ha- will he find faith on the earth? When Jesus returns, he will not say, did you have your eschatological timelines right? Let's pull them out and I'll grade That's not what he's going to say. And he will not be much interested in how you and I died. It matters not a whit how you and I die. If the Lord tarries, we all die. And it matters not whether you die of COVID, old age, or being vaporized under a Russian nuclear ICBM. 10,000 years from now, that will matter not a whit. The only thing that will matter is one thing and one thing only. When the Son of Man returned, did he find faith or not? That is the only question. That is the only question. When he returns, like like the avenging angels on the night of the Exodus who looked for blood on the doorposts, when he returns with the armies, the hosts of heaven, will he find faith or not? That is the question. 
It's the only question that really matters. And therefore, whether our faith will endure the hardships and the losses and the setbacks that Jesus promised would come to his disciples. Discipleship is hard, period, end of sentence. So, that is the only question. That is the only question. The only question is, will we believe and continue enduring believing passages like Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Or Psalm uh, 62, for God alone my soul waits in silence, from him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence, the only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. That is normal Christianity. That's not super Christianity. That is the only Christianity that there is in those verses. And is that us or not? That is the only question. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. Do I preach this to myself or not? That is the question. In other words, God will bring justice, but will we persist in faith in him? That's the question. That's the question. Now, as I said, there is a reasonable element to thinking about faith and prayer because Again, in our experience, we don't see the immediate answers to prayer. We don't see what Jesus just said. So we struggle with this. We have questions about this. So we need to think clearly about God first, but then think about the timing of God's answers. And um, we need to think about this because, as I said, Jesus doesn't spiritualize or hedge what he says here, speedily, immediately, faithfully, always. Well, Daniel gives us some insight on this. Daniel was a prophet who was exiled to Israel, or from Israel to Babylon, and there he received visions. And there's two situations that I want us to see. One, these are on page 700 in your Bible in the, in the chairs if you want to pull this out. But first in Daniel 9, da- Daniel is reading his Bible, and then he moves into prayer, not just for himself, but for God's people because he knows from reading his Bible that their exile is going to be over soon, and so he prays. Prays for himself, and he prays for God's people. And this is, by the way, a crucial principle. Authentic, faith-driven prayer almost always feathers out from digesting God's Word. Well, then we read in verse 20, Daniel 9, beginning in verse 20, "'While I was speaking and praying,' confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Again, when did the answer come out? When when, when was the answer given from the throne? Like 
the moment you opened your mouth. Like, like the moment you bent your knee in humility before you even said the word, the answer went out. As if God was like tightly wound in that moment, not, not sitting in a lazy boy, ooh, but tightly wound, ready in that moment. Boom, there's the answer. Send it out, Gabriel. Boom. Okay, beautiful, beautiful. But then, sometime later, Daniel gets another vision in Daniel 10. And after receiving this vision, it says, Daniel mourns for three weeks, eating no meat or wine during that time. Daniel 10, he humbles himself that he might understand the vision, which was greatly troubling to him, for three weeks. He's fasting and mourning. And then finally, another visitor and a message, beginning in verse 10 of Daniel 10. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said, O Daniel, man greatly loved. There that is again. Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, three weeks. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. So there's a lot about these visions that we could explore, but for our purposes here, think about what's the same and what's different about these two answers to prayer. Same man, same God. Same stance of humility before this God. And in the first answer, in the first prayer, Daniel gets his answer while he's praying. Like literally, done. While he's praying, the answer comes. And in the second, it takes three weeks. (laughs) It takes three weeks to get there. And why? I don't even think Daniel could explain to you everything that I just read, let alone I, about princes of Persia and angels in the air fighting one another. Um, That's above my pay grade. I mean, even after I've read it to you. Um, but, but what is gloriously the same is that in both cases, again, at the very moment Daniel humbled himself and prayed, his words were heard, and at that moment God pronounced an answer, and God's answer in both cases was immediate and certain. It was a pronouncement of justice that did not delay at all. He issued it. His pronouncement when Daniel opened his mouth when he bent his heart to pray. So you've heard it said before that um, when we pray, the answer is always yes, no, or wait. But I, I don't think that's quite true. The answer is always yes or no. But there, there is this question of the waiting. And for cosmically significant reasons that are far and above our pay grade, sometimes God's answers are delayed in getting to us. Sometimes Gabriel has to do other things before our answer comes to us. But the answer is always given the moment his people pray. Yes or no? Yes or no? Always, always. So, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? We must, we must remember who this God is, that this is a God of utter faithfulness and responsiveness who hears every request of his people and gives an immediate answer always, and then the only question is the timing of its receipt. 
the timing of its getting to us for cosmically complex reasons that only he understands. He is God and we are not. (laughs) Praise God that the world is in his sovereign hands, not mine. (laughs) As the great theologian Garth Brooks once said, thank thank God for unanswered prayer. <clears throat> and this waiting, this is the rub, right? This, 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 this is it. Here, this is the rub. This is the hard part. The timing, the waiting. So, so what else do we have here that can feed our faith in the waiting? Well, again, remember who your God is. Remember the timing of his answers. And then remember, thirdly, who you are. Remember who you are. And this goes by different words in Daniel and in Luke, but it's the same thing. It's the same thing. In Daniel, I heard it and I emphasized, we read it and I emphasized it. Daniel, I repeated again in Daniel 10, 19, O man, greatly loved, greatly loved. It's my opinion that the speaker here is a, is a pre-incarnate visitation of the Lord Jesus to Daniel. Theologians differ on this, but can you imagine hearing that from the Savior himself? Oh man, oh woman, greatly loved. I love you. I love you. That's why I'm answering this. That's why I heard your words. I'm here because I heard your words. And why did I hear your words? And why am I so responsive? Because I love you. Because I love you. Why do I love you? I love you because I love you. Well, where is this in Luke? Well, it goes by a different name in Luke chapter 18, verse 7, the word elect, or in some translations, chosen, chosen. God does not respond with such immediate speed for everyone in the world. God responds this way only for those who are his elect, his elect what does this mean? Those, those that he has chosen. When did he choose us? Ephesians 1 puts it this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, he chose us in Christ that we should be holy and blameless before him. That we, can you imagine this? Can you picture this in your mind? That we might stand before God that that right now, when I prayed just a second ago, it was as if I was talking in the very throne room of God with no blemish, completely pleasing to him completely welcome. Why did he do this? The end of verse 4, in love. Where did this love come from? God. God. That's the only answer. God. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption because we've all been exiled from him. We've all been separated from him. The whole world, that, that's why the world is insane is because it's separated from him. But, but we, we have been adopted. We who were far off, he came to us and adopted us. And so now, just like Jesus, those who are chosen, those who are elect, may stand before him just like his son and say, Father, will you please? Why did he do this? He did this because he loves us. Why does he love you? He loves you because he loves you. <laughs> That's the best theological answer I have. Well, there's one more. There's one more reason. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. This is how God glorifies himself in the world. He pours out his grace on undeserving people who have no merit to make themselves worthy before him. And he, he lavishes us with his grace. And that's how he glorifies himself. And, and the, way, the way that we glorify him is by faith, by trusting in the sacrifice that he provided in his son. And that's how we glorify him, because faith shines a bright light on the giver of the grace. It is all by faith. It is all by faith. So the elect are those whom God chose before time itself for himself, that he would lavish us with his grace and he did this all in love while we were still dead in our trespasses and sins, while we were still carcasses. We were as useful as a carcass to him. That's when he loved us. That's when he loved us. So, that's who we are. And we must remember this. We must remember this. That this Father, this Father, this one Father in heaven accomplished all of this by putting his son to death for us on the cross. And there Jesus paid, took upon himself the punishment for all of our sin, took all the wrath that was deserving of all of our sin that exiled us from God, and he put it all on Jesus, and Jesus took it all upon himself. But then Jesus was raised from the dead. Raised from the dead. God did this for his beloved. And God only listens to the prayers of his beloved like this. So the only way that you can be in his beloved, to be his beloved, is by faith, faith in Jesus. So my question to you is, have you done this? Is this you? Have you trusted in him? Because without this faith in Jesus, now, today, in all the threats that we face, but the same was true three years ago. Same was true before COVID. The same was true every moment of your life, as we just sang, you needed this. Because there is no other way for your request to be heard in the throne room of heaven without being called his beloved. There's no other way to be welcomed in holiness before this holy, holy, holy God than to be called his beloved. And the only way to become his beloved is by faith. Do you have this? Have you exercised it? Please do. Please do. But then, Christian, you and I must keep believing. And the way we battle to keep believing is by preaching the gospel to ourselves, to preaching these truths to ourselves so that we would be grounded in the truth, though the world may turn upside down. 
We battle disappointment and discouragement in the waiting by remembering who we are before God, not based on what we have done, not even not trusting that day when you believed, but trusting the day before that when Jesus died on the cross for you. We preach that to ourselves, that we are loved in the beloved in Christ and that God has bet his very reputation in the world, in the world on being our provider our protector, our refuge in time of great need. Which is, by the way, every day. <laughs> so believing this, believing this opens up to us a whole new world. A whole new world. Because what this does is, as you preach this to yourself, you are freed from yourself. Because you know that you are held in the beloved. That no matter what may come, justice will come. Justice will come. And this frees you from yourself. And this frees you into a, into a very odd place where, on the one hand, we may pray boldly and persistently against the enemies of our souls. We may name names and call down God's justice against them. And yet at the same time, at the same time, we may look at those same enemies and think about the fact that there was once a time when we deserved all the, all the justice and more. That the, for the last two years, God has been very merciful to us. We haven't even gotten anywhere near close to what we actually deserve. And he is still being merciful to us today. And when you start to think this way and you, and you can pray boldly against the enemies of your soul and yet at the same time you, you can think about the cross and you remember that there was this moment in time when as the soldiers nailed the, hand, the, the, the nails into Jesus' hands, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so you may, may be in this odd place, but it's, it's normal Christianity to be in this odd place to pray against the enemies of our souls, and, and, but also to pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and then to rest, to rest in the fact that one day there will be justice, and every sin, every sin in the entire world will be hung around one neck or the other, either around Jesus's or around that person's. God will bring justice. It will be done. So we may rest in this uh, fearful, awe-inspiring thought. We may rest in it and then move towards the world in love. Because when you know that you are loved this way and you are secure this way, no, no matter what hell may throw at you, you are free to love. You're free. Well, let me get at it this way. You probably remember Paul's thorn in his flesh. Talked about his thorn in his flesh, 2 Corinthians 12. And what's always struck me about this is that it was seemingly a constant pain in his life. It would come and go, but it was, it was, it was always there. And yet, he says that he only asked God three times to take away this thorn. Which I've always thought, only three? You know, like, like for, for me, it would be like 13,000 times, you know. Like, why only three? And I think it's not that Paul thinks he doesn't want to bother God about his thorn. It's that Paul is living out Jesus' parable here more than anyone else ever has of, of being consistently and persistently in prayer 
And yet, the, the reason he only prayed three times for this most painful condition that he had was that he knew his prayer had been heard. He knew that his prayer had been heard, and so he can rest in that, and then he can leave, if you will, he can leave himself with God and then reach out to the world. And this is why, when you read the rest of Paul's letters, it is filled with prayer for other people. For other people all over the place. He was free to pray for others persistently and consistently against the threats to their souls. It's not that God didn't have time to hear his requests about his thorn. It's that Paul didn't have space in his prayer time to pray for the thorn because of his love for all the saints. So if you say you know what love is, show me your prayer list. If you say you're a person of love who cares for others, then show me who and what you pray for, and I'll show you who and what you really love, how narrow or wide your love really is. Show me your prayer list, and I'll show you the actual priorities of your life, whether it's for yourself or God and others. Thus, when Jesus commands us to be persistent in prayer here, he's, he's not saying necessarily to pray 43,000 times to God about the exact same thing in your life necessarily. Yes, pray for your requests. But if we pray by faith, we may leave our requests for God with God and then look up and look out, out of ourselves and see the other 43,000 enemies that are there and that have always been there. Even before we were under nuclear threat, they've always been there. But we just don't see them. We just don't see them. Because we're too curled in on ourselves, me included me included. 43,000 other roaring lions prowling around looking for someone to devour. Maybe not you, but maybe that other brother or sister. So, and so we must pray. God is calling us here to be prayer warriors and not just for ourselves, but for others. And I want to say, I, I think it is, it is a, no coincidence that Jesus here uses a widow as the center of this parable. I want to say, if, if you are a widow in our church, and especially if you're watching from home, God has given you a severe mercy and a, a severe grace that is a severe privilege in widowhood. And that is, God most likely has set you aside, especially you, to be a prayer warrior for this church. I, I covet, I ask you especially, but I ask all of us, but especially you, to pray, to fight, to fight against the enemies of all of our souls in prayer, because they're there, they're there, to fight. But we must all learn to fight in prayer, to fight and leave it with God and then watch God move. Watch God move. If, if, we, if we consider all of Luke and Acts, which, which Luke also wrote, we find that all the big things happen after prayer. All the big things. The coming of John the Baptist, Anna's seeing Jesus, Cornelius' salvation, Peter's coming to Cornelius, Paul's salvation, the setting apart of Paul and Barnabas for the Gentiles, um, Pentecost, all, all of these things, that the founding of the church itself came after prayer. 
And in Jesus' own life, prayer precedes God giving him the Holy Spirit at his baptism, the choice of the twelve, the confession of Peter, the transfiguration, the temptation in the garden, and the cross itself. All after prayer. It, whatever it is, happens after prayer. And flip this over. Whenever the church is impotent, it's most often because we have simply not asked God, will you please move that mountain, Father? Oh, and there's 42,299 after that that I'm going to pray for too, by the way. (laughs) Prayer is warfare. Prayer is warfare, and the doctrines of our war are found in the Word. Read your Bible, pray your Bible against the enemies of our souls. So as a church, we do this by committing with each other to pray through the phone directory. It is not first a phone directory, it's a prayer list. So if you're a member here, we expect this of you. We expect this of you. This is a, this is a job of membership. Because we want to come to this God who is working all by grace and who is tightly wound to respond to our prayers, to immediately hear them and render an immediate verdict. Because we are loved, all of us are loved if we are in him. So whatever you do, find a way to pray. Find a way to pray. Especially now, but every day. Um, my opinion and recommendation, though not a law, find a way to record your prayers, but don't, di- don't get too complicated. Keep it simple. Keep it simple because um, it, it, when there's a battle, when you are in war, the wisest thing to do is to act like it. <laughs> and when you are in war, the real soldier does not stay on the back line fiddling with his binoculars and trying to figure out, how do, my, how do I use this complex equipment that I got? No, the real soldier runs to the battle line. Runs to the battle line. So pray. Keep it simple. Record your prayers so that you can watch the answers come in. But pray. Pray. And this kind of praying will lead to a bold life. Because as, as we pray persistently, here's what happens. God opens us up to a larger world in love as we, we leave our requests with him. And in and, and, and all of our praying, it'll lead us to another kind of prayer. Biblical uh, beseeching of God out of love for his people will lead us to another kind of prayer, which I can best summarize as, um, help me God, amen, Geronimo. <laughs> And we jump into the fray. Too often the church has gotten bogged down in in getting curled in on itself. And we must learn afresh how to pray. Help me God, Geronimo, here we go. Amen. Amen. Because so often there's so much that we don't know. And and we don't want to use prayer as as a thin veneer for hiding our spiritual cowardice. And so often, the faith that Jesus is looking for is is evidenced by the the person who, though he doesn't know how everything's going to turn out, he doesn't know if he's doing it exactly quite right. Because in war, things get foggy. You don't know everything. You don't know God's will about whether this is going to happen or this. But I only know this, and I'm driven by love to do this. God help me. Amen. Geronimo. And in that moment, in the jumping off point, in that space, right after the word Geronimo is where real faith is evidenced that real faith was operating all the time in the praying to begin with. 
So on the one side of prayer is, is the ditch of, of action without prayer. We don't want to be foolish, but there is another ditch that we might use prayer to hide our faithless cowardice. So we need, we need, our world needs, our church needs, Elk Grove needs, Sacramento County needs people who pray, who pray, who pray, who persist in prayer until they finally get to the point where they pray, God help me, Geronimo, amen. By such people, God brings revival, and that is what we need now, more than anything else. As Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, it is, it is wholly possible that we are given war because we didn't know what to do with peace. We spent our peace on debauchery and death. What our world needs most right now is not peace, it is revival. It is conversion of the nations. Because, as Daniel said, once one is brought to be beloved of the Lord, then peace comes. And then peace comes between men. Only in Christ, though. Only in Christ. Well, let me pray for that now. Father, your word says in Romans 2 that you are rich in mercy and you have been rich in mercy. You have given us far less than what we deserve as a culture. And yet it says in Romans 2 that your mercy is meant to lead us to repentance. And yet your word says in 2 Timothy that you are the one who grants repentance. Everything you demand of us, you supply to us so that you would get all the glory. So I pray now. I pray because you are the King of heaven and you are the Lord of lords. You are the King of the kingdom. I pray, will you grant repentance? Will you grant revival in our nation and among the nations? Will you thwart evil? Will you thwart evil? Will you restrain your hand, however? Will you continue in mercy? And will you, by your people, teach us and lead us to proclaim this amazing grace to our world? Forgive us for looking for the right answers outside of you. You are the answer, Lord Jesus. Our peace is found in you. So be glorified in this world. Be glorified in Elk Grove. Be glorified that people would be drawn to you and that the nations would then truly be at peace. And we pray this for your glorious name. Amen. Receive the benediction. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, 
In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Privileged child of the King, go in restful faith in that. Amen. Amen.